and welcome to Fact Schmacks. It's the podcast good enough to get you a C minus. My name's Vatten. I've got a story to tell. Uh, my name's Kev. I have a story to interrupt. Kevin, did you have to think about what your name was for a second there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. It's my, t- my turn to rate your intro. That stank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, how's, how's your new bit going? You got uh, some more new bit, bit of, yet? <laughs> it's a bit about nothing. There's no new bit. <laughs> That's a bit how of a disappointment. Oh, <laughs> uh, how about we have a bit of facts facts? Oh, you want a bit of fact schmacks, do you? I want well, the whole thing. So, uh, you know, often I try to come up with themes. Uh, this time I decided to hit you with something random, but I got a special one in there. Random. I found a, a, a special fact about a an old hero of ours. Oh, you. <laughs> an old hero of the show. If this it's, is going where I think it's, it's going. It's not your hero, Mel Gibson. <laughs> okay. And it's not Who's our, not my hero. It's not our listener's hero, Jim Atomic. <laughs> this is a different hero. A man of action. Oh, okay. <laughs> Factor schmacks, Matt. Yes. One strand of hair can hold up to three ounces of weight. The average person's head contains about 100,000 strands of hair. If you do the math... You can support up to 12 tons worth of weight. I wouldn't want to try because I think the, the skin would give out before the hair at that well, point. I, but I think it just means sure. like if you braided all your hair or something, I guess. I don't know. If you I mean, cut that hair off now, and made a I rope think, out of human hair. I think for myself it would be about six tons, maybe four. <laughs> I got a lot less hair. I think you got... Like maybe less is maybe doing, no maybe no tons. He's doing a lot of <laughs> lifting there. <laughs> Fact or schmack, Matt? There is a lot less water in the Fact desert. Fact or schmack, Matt? Yes. Children's book author Roald Dahl was a spy. To be more precise, he was an agent for the British Security Coordination, and he was tasked to gather intel during the Second World War. Okay. What do you think of that? I Factor Schmacked, Matt. <laughs> actor and diabetes spokesman, Wolford Brimley. Yes! Set a record for best supporting actor nominations in both television and cinema. Although he was never awarded, uh, never won any awards. Really? Forever the Bridesmaid? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He didn't win for Cocoon? He had a bunch of Best Supporting Actor nominations, never won. As per usual, my friend, TikTok. TikTok. What's the answer going to be? What is it? What's your gut telling you today? What's the answer? I've already forgotten what the first one was. Uh, About the hair? The hair. Yeah. Now, I have have been told never trust anything a bald man says about hair. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is a great product. Dippity doo hair gel. That was my jam. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, if I knew I'd have grown my hair out, I'd have had flowing locks for the first 25 years of life. Yep. Instead, I but kept it high and tight. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. The old Caesar mm-hmm. back in the day. Yep. A little scoop up at the front. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm not allowed to grow my hair out. Last time I tried, I told my wife it was going to be the last time and 
you know, every time I, I tried, I'm like, eventually it's going to fall down, but it just keeps growing out. Oh, like you get like, uh, uh, oh God, from, uh, back to the future, doc. Yeah. Doc, you get a doc Brown going a bit. That's or just standing. Like, it's just like a bowl cut that keeps getting bigger. That's amazing. Like it's, I, I will say as far as uh, hairstyles go, I am glad that you've ditched the mustache in favor of a beard. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I don't really have a beard so much as I'm just lazy. This is very, uh, this is uh, really drawing it out. So we got yeah, the hair thing. Yeah, I feel thing. like you're stalling. I am. I'm stalling for time. Uh, we got the hair thing. We've got Roald the second Dahl. one, which was Roald Dahl being a spy. And then we have Mr. Wilford Brimley himself. Mr. Wilford Brimley. Always the bridesmaid, never, never the, the bride. bride. God, I feel like he had to have won for Cocoon. Is that what you think? I think that one's the schmack. Over I think like he's, Morgan Freeman and Shawshank or whatever else came out that year. I, I don't remember what year it was. I don't think Cocoon and Shawshank were the same. Uh, I don't know. They're old. They are old. I'm, Morgan was a great I, supporting actor in that, though. Well, yeah. 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 Yeah, I'm going to go with that one. Yeah, that's the schmack. <laughs> and is it that he's that he actually has one? I have no idea. Oh, you just made it I up? I just made that up. Yeah, I just <laughs> pulled it out of my ass. Maybe he does hold the record. I don't know. <laughs> that is amazing. Speaking of amazing, oh, that's great. Um, you got a. I've got an amazing. I've got uh, an amazing tale for you today. You know what we 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 didn't do is we didn't uh, thank our thank our pals Max and Lano for their no, April Fools' episode where they did Which the Randall from Forest incident amazing i've never been parodied so well uh <laughs> just an absolute roast of us and uh you guys did a great job thanks a lot so Make good sure you check i feel out so bad show. about <laughs> our show yeah. that we did for them was terrible but you can definitely find it on their um <laughs> on their feed milk the podcast <laughs> go check it out they're a lot of fun really good guys yep uh just an amazing episode they did such a good job i yeah i yeah I was just crying the whole time. It was amazing. Um, so if you remember all the way to when we did the last episode, we were we were talking about a bad experiment. And uh we went through some of the um, you know, what 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 is a good experiment. We're not going through that again. I just invite you to remember that. And if you haven't listened to the episode that came out previous to this, uh part um, that's one good stuff. This is part yes, two. Part two of of questionable science. Uh, Can just I still invite be the you scientist? to remember that. Uh, yeah. I feel like that should be my nickname now, the scientist. Jim Atomic and the scientist. <laughs> Jim Atomic. And the, you know what? <laughs> like, a, like a spinoff episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's starting to take shape here. Um, yeah. The, uh, the first matrix I designed was quite naturally perfect. It was a work of art, flawless, sublime, a triumph equaled only by its monumental failure. The inevitability of its doom is apparent to me now as a consequence of the imperfection inherent in every human being. Thus, I redesigned it based on your history to more accurately reflect the varying grotesqueries of your nature. 
Now, it, for those of you who have never experienced pop culture in any way, that's the architect from The Matrix. And if you don't know the central conceit of the movie The Matrix, I'm very sorry to spoil it for you. Um, you know, it's about robots trying to design uh, sort of paradise for humans in their in their minds. Yeah. You do recall The Matrix, Kevin? You know, I'm going to be honest with you. I watched Have it a never long seen time it? I've seen it, but it <laughs> okay. never really... I was never I was never a Matrix fanboy. I was never like, oh, I can't wait for the next one to come out. I was just like, yeah, it was a good movie. Neither was I, but I can remember like the basic plot points. Anyways, you know, it must be nice to remember things, Matt. Let's just brag about it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what was that first fact max thing again? Doesn't matter. Keep going. <laughs> Drive so, on. Yeah. Guy we're going to be talking about today, the guy who did the uh, experiment we're going to be talking today. It was about the hair, by the way, but whatever. <laughs> I know, I was making a joke about how I can't remember things. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, and I forgot that you... Uh, all right, just carry on. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Riveting podcast. Holy right shit. Uh, yeah. John Bumpus Calhoun. That's a fake name. So, okay, so I remember right <laughs> as we were starting, I had, I like, I was say, saying something about having to look up like the first thing in my notes because I was like, no, that can't be right. No, that's right. Yeah, that's an alias for sure. John, born May 11, 1917. So maybe that uh, puts it into some uh, bumpus context. Yeah. So Spelled you're telling me that a Christian bump name ass. could be bumpus? I, apparently it was in autocorrect too i can name my kid bumpus you could wow uh if anybody out there is listening which you know matrix say not that many <laughs> the analytics <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the numbers that fly across the screen <laughs> yeah uh if your name is bumpus i apologize but uh you have a weird name it's a wild handle uh Born May 11, 1917. He died on September 7, 1995. Uh, he was an American ethologist and behavioral researcher. Now, an ethologist is, to put it very, very simply, overly simply, uh, a person who studies the, the behavior of animals. Can I just uh, interject? Also, you're getting a little why too not? good. You're getting a little, it's my, <laughs> listen, it's my job. You're getting a little too good at research because I was just about to ask you, what's an ethologist? <laughs> well... And now yeah, I've I'm forgotten, starting, so you need to explain it one more time. A person who studies uh, the behavior of animals, animal behavior. Okay. He's also commonly associated with the Neo-Malthusian movement, which stems from an oh, 18th-slash-19th right, yes. century American economist, economist named Thomas Malthus. Uh, that guy used math to say that, hey, the general the population... Math. He used some math to say, hey, the general population could grow exponentially... But food supply, you know, as things are right now, can only grow linearly. So we're going to run into a problem eventually. Um, and, and he was right at the time. Uh, now, since then, kind of the industrial and green revolutions really, you know, kicked into high gear and uh, made that specific prediction wrong. We can now scale food production, um, at least currently. But people still kind of use his his name and his initial theory to just kind of study overpopulation 
and and the idea that overpopulation could lead to some sort of ecological disaster. It's probably good that there's people who are thinking about that sort of thing. Um, it's good to stay ahead now, of it. Yeah. Uh, when this guy uh, got his PhD, he moved to a place called Towson or Towson. I'm going to say Towson. Also a fake name. <laughs> Maryland, where uh, he was a researcher at John Hopkins University in Baltimore. Uh, I smoked which, pot uh, with Johnny Hopkins. There you go. Of which Towson is a suburb of. You're really saucy in the afternoon. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sleepy today. Yeah. So uh, while he's there, he asks his neighbor if he can use an unused piece of property uh, next to um, his, well, obviously it's his neighbor, uh, for an experiment that uh, he wanted to do. The neighbor agreed and Rat City was born. Oh, Rat <laughs> yeah. City, huh? Yeah. Rat City, it's not just the name of my high school band. Uh, it was a quarter acre a sized. Joke. I know. <laughs> quarter acre sized rat habitat that would provide wait, shelter, wait, wait, wait. food, and water. What was the name yes. of your high school band? Um, There was a few. I'm trying to remember which one. Uh, there was one that was really horrible, wasn't it? Yeah. I remember you telling me once and I was like, that's a terrible name. Well, there we I, I played with this guy, well, this with this couple of guys, and we just kind of kept like throwing out these ridiculous names, but a lot of it involved people's like full names and the so it'd be like yeah, someone's yeah. name and the enormous smelly love was one of them. Oh that's, uh, a, that's not a terrible name. Uh, yeah, it was pretty good. Um Matt, carry on. You're getting distracted here. I am getting distracted. You've you've distracted me. Anyways, Rat City. Um, this guy, uh, Calhoun, estimated that up to 5,000 rats could live there. Now, he starts with five pregnant females and watched as rats did what rats do. Those females gave birth. Some of them were men. Some of them were women. Those rats did their thing and, you know, population explodes. I don't need to explain rat sex to you. <laughs> Anyways, he could never get uh, really get his habitat over about 200 rats. Uh, in Why fact, 150 that? seemed to be where things started to break down, where there's some behavioral issues that would start to crop up. The rats seemed to like gathering in groups of about 12, using only a few of the feeding locations. Uh, after a year or two of observing this, of not being able to get uh, the population over really 200 or so, he closed down this experiment. Now, you know, in analyzing his results, he concluded that a high infant mortality rate was really responsible for, for what was going on. For some reason, uh, after the rats hit a certain density in his environment, they just stopped caring for their young properly and few, if any, rats were making it to a mature adulthood. Now, that's like, you know, it's pretty common in the wild for not every rat to make it, right? But this was sure. a little more than, there's some obvious <clears throat> neglect that was going on. We uh, we bought um, my stepson from, you know, previous relationship there. Yep. Uh, we, we got him a hamster. Dr. Uh -huh. Hamster. <laughs> Dr. Hamster turned out was pregnant. And Dr. Hamster had a bunch of babies mm -hmm. that nobody wanted. Do? 
Dr. Yeah. Hamster is a goddamn cannibal. Dr. <laughs> Hamster ate the babies. We had to explain so many things to a a young lad who didn't oh. need to know about infanticide. But, uh, you know, yeah, it was, it was quite the life lesson. I think only about three survived. Well, I think that sets the appropriate tone for the episode that we're going to be, for what we're going to be doing for the rest Perfect. of this episode. Um, so a few years after he concludes his initial experiment, he's hired at the National Institute of Health. And then he went on to the National Institute of Mental Health, or NIM for short. And if there's a little part of your brain that just got... You got to add the age. Yeah, NIM. <laughs> if there's a little part of your brain that just got... <laughs> A little excited at the thought of rodents and Nim. Uh, you're old like me. And yes, Don Bluth's Secret of Nim does use those experiments as a loose lore basis. What are you so, talking uh, about? What are you talking about, the, Spaceman? What's your angle here? Have you ever seen uh, Secret of Nim? No. Animated movie when I was a kid. Oh my God, it's amazing. Dark, really kind of dark animation about mice. Um. And yeah, there's like, there's rats of Nim that are like, yeah, I, I'm not going to explain the movie because I haven't seen it since I was a child, but okay, the, uh, the movie was, I digress, on carry on. That was based on these experiments. Okay. Um, All right. Yeah. While he was there, he was given time and resources to continue his rat studies. So for the next several years, he designed small rat habitats, not this, you know, quarter acre madness, uh, or universes to house his experiments, smaller in scale and greater in controls. These studies and the ones that came after are commonly called the mouse utopia experiments. And I've got mouse utopia in scare quotes because, uh, well, we'll, we'll get to mouse utopia. Um, for eight years, he labored at his rats. Uh, and the end result was a study he released in early 1962 called Population Density and Social Pathology, where he shared his results. Spoiler warning, they are not great. Uh, couching the study as an experiment in, of, into the effects of vice in population gro growth, um, the environment was set up thusly. Imagine a square, divide that square into quarters, separating the quadrants now uh, with an electric fence. Uh, three of the four fences have a bridge over them, essentially making it a, a U-shape that okay. the, the rats can traverse. Right. Now, each quadrant of the U-shape has apartments. Um, some of them have feeders in them. Um, some of them don't. No, I think actually they all they all had food and water in them but and, and apartments. But anyways. Like with little um, furniture and like... Uh Decorative just things. like places for them to live. But actually, okay. like if it was set up to largely look, a, you know, a lot more like a human environment than a mouse environment. Oh, interesting. Maybe get into that later. Um, now, another thing that he did is in some of his universes or experiments, uh, the rats had access to powdered food, which was really easy to get at. Uh, but in the other experiments, the rats were fed hard pellets that were behind a sort of chicken wire fencing that um, the rats had to really work at to, to get food out. Uh, so the, the result was that in some of the studies, some of the studies, as the rats are spending time trying to work out their food, other rats are likely to come up and start eating. And it kind of 
became a thing that they really just associated eating with being around other rats more than would be necessarily normal. Um, and that kind of becomes a problem a little later. Um, now, uh, there was also um, spiral staircases that led up to the living areas. So one thing to keep in it's mind... It's like a fancy this, little mouse loft. It really is. But uh, one thing to keep in mind is when you think about this, there's there's bridges over chicken wire fences that are electrified. Uh, and then there's these like spiral staircases that lead up to the living quarters. What's what's you, the point you, of the electrified fence? Keep them. Well, great question because Thank when you, you think about it, as a scientist, have, I have to ask the question. Absolutely, you got to ask the important questions. Uh, if you think about it, for lack of a better term, they've introduced a lot of choke points in travel. A lot of places where you could cut rats off. So he estimated that 40 rats could live comfortably in each quadrant, but that he would let it get to 80 before artificially calling the population of any one of these experiments. Uh, things would go sideways pretty much instantly. The initial phase, uh, there's a lot of fights to figure out who's the dominant rat. Next few days, the submissive rats do what uh, apparently submissive rats out in the wild usually do, which is they go out and forage for food early. Um, due to the way that the enclosure was designed, that meant that the rats found themselves going to what you would consider the bottom bar of the U to go get food via the bridges that cross the electric fence. When they did that, the dominant males would guard the bridges and not allow them to return uh, to the other sides. In effect, most of the male population was forced into the center of the environment while the dominant males would guard their, their stables of females. Uh, a lot of people refer to like as a harem of of rats. Um, really? Yeah. The, the few submissive males that did remain in the harems had some interesting characteristics of their own. They made no attempt at mating with the females, uh, and instead they did their best to mate with the dominant males. Now, weirder than that, the dominant males didn't really seem to mind. Okay, hold up. <laughs> So things have gotten strange quick. So you're telling me that you've mm -hmm. got some, in one quadrant, you have some fat incel rats who are just gorging themselves. Yeah, and stuck, essentially. And stuck. Then you've got, then you've got Mr. Handsome Rat. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Handsome Rat. Probably not Mr. Handsome Rat, Mr. Tough Rat. Mr. Tough Rat. Yeah, Mr. Tough Rat is just swinging both ways in this rat cage. He's just having a heyday. What's he I eating? Guess. Uh, I think that, again there was pellets in every. Oh right, yeah, yeah. In every, so I think that you know they just have to guard, basically keep the females in one pen and guard it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Did the females not go out and forage? They didn't have to. Okay, so they were just yeah. kept ladies. I think, and I think part of this is just like the natural behavior of rats where the, the non-dominant males would leave the, the nest or colony to go look for food early. But just because the way this was designed, that let the dominant males basically choke them out and say, nah, you're not coming back. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, uh, while all this is going on, both colony of rats with the hard and soft food, um, like this, this, sorry, the stuff I was talking about before, that's going on in both colonies, hard and soft food. But the rats who have to deal with the hard food develop a strange behavior of their own. Like I said, it takes a long time to get food, 
likelihood that another rat's going to come along and start eating while you're eating is high. All of a sudden, uh, you're just associating eating with other rats, and soon enough, you won't eat without other rats. Uh, this exacerbates the problem of rats being concentrated on the bottom bar of the U. Uh, these behaviors combine into what Calhoun called a behavioral sink, which he defined as an increase in pathological activity in the rats due to the stress uh, of the high population density. Uh, in the females, this most obviously presented itself as an inability to properly rear children uh, or properly build nests. Um, it seemed like the rats were more interested in their social activities and child rearing. So like they'd be building a nest or child rearing and all of a sudden just be like, ah, you know what? It's time to go eat and I got to go down to the bottom, you know, pen to eat with all the other rats and, just you know, abandon so this, my young and I'm just going to abandon my young. Um, they wouldn't even get like a babysitter or anything. No. Uh, and even wow. worse for the, for the females, when they were ready to mate, they had literally nowhere to run or hide from the male rats in the enclosure and those rats could tell that they're ready to mate. So that just kind of sounds like a a bad situation <laughs> for like rats. A, I'm, I'm not I'm not gonna say it. I'm just gonna let it go. Yeah, like there's not a good thing you could say about it. No. It's it's a bad situation for rats. No. And this is supposed to be a mouse utopia. <laughs> but yeah. anyways. Um Due to uh, an inability to not mate and a decrease in the ability to care for the young, infant mortality hit as high as 94% in some of these universes, a situation which wow. one of the research assistants called hell. Um, in the males, this manifested in violent and sexual, uh, violent, sexual, and violently sexual behavior. Uh, he grouped the males into three groups. The pansexuals, who humped anything that moved, the somnambulists, which sort of sauntered around the pen without interacting with anybody. They seemed to ignore everyone, and everyone ignored them. Last were the probers, fast and aggressive and aggressively pansexual. <laughs> uh, they would chase females into their burrows with no regard to their own health. Uh, their young would uh, frequently be found cannibalized. Speaking of... Dr. Hamster. Yeah. Yep. Gross. Um... At the conclusion of this round of experiments, he would take the four healthiest males and females and allow them to breed, but none of the young survived past weaning. So they were um, unable to, they're just completely unable to rear children at that point. There was no maternal instinct or parental instinct that had been passed on. Um, <clears throat> now, the study came out and quickly cements itself in the mind of the intelligentsia. Articles are written about how this explained and mirrored life in the inner cities. A bunch of white suburban intellectuals talking about the deviance of inner city life would be one way of looking at it. This was, after all, right around the time like white flight is going on out of the suburbs. Uh, there was a famous and really, really oftenly misconstrued incident. I'm sure you've heard the the myth of like, you know, 10 people watched a woman get married or murdered in an alleyway and nobody called the cops. And that's like a game of telephone that starts at a couple of people might have heard something but didn't think it was anything and didn't right. call the police and then ends up as, you know, people are just watching it go on and nobody does anything. Yeah. Uh, that, that was a myth that was going on at the same time. And people are like using this uh, study and saying, well, this, you know, this shows the lack of... Uh, the um, uh, the the moral decay that's going on in the the inner cities. This is what's going on. So a bunch of sociologists and 
psychologists start looking at society at large and trying to find some evidence of behavioral sync, but they really didn't find any because this might surprise you. Humans aren't the same as rats, um, but the scientists at the time were perplexed. Now, uh, Calhoun himself became something of an academic celebrity. This, you know, really cemented his, his status. I even saw pictures of him meeting the Pope, the Pope of all people. The Can you believe it? The Pope. Which Pope? I, uh, some Pope in the 70s, I don't know. All right, fair enough. Uh, Calhoun was not dissuaded, though. He wanted to build an experiment, not dissuaded by the fact that there was no, you know, corresponding evidence to anything we could look at in society. Uh, he He wanted to build an experiment that was bigger, that was better, combining all the things he had learned. What he made was Universe 25. Dun, dun, dun. dun. Universe 25. This time, the area would be significantly larger, specifically much more vertical with vertical apartments surrounding a common area that was stocked with all the food and nesting material that they could ever need. This would allow for up to 3,800 mice, uh, this time mice instead of rats, to live in the enclosure. He placed eight mice in the enclosure, four male and four female, and this time he had no plans to call the population. He was just going to not interfere, just sit and watch, you know, this is, he thinks this is just all going to work out or we're going to see how it works out anyways. Now, uh, he observed four distinct phases of this colony. Phase A, the first 104 days, uh, constituted the first phase, the time before the first mice were born. This phase was apparently marked by considerable social turmoil until they paired off. Calhoun called this the adjustment phase. The second phase, phase B, went from day 104 to day one, or sorry, 315. During this time, the mice doubled in population every 55 days, which neatly coincides with how long it takes mice to grow to maturity. Uh, mice grow up, mice have babies, those mice grow up, those mice have babies. Calhoun called this phase the exploitation phase. Now, after this time, the third phase started. It was marked by the population doubling rate increasing to every 145 days. That's about three times as long for those of you keeping track with your pen and paper at home like I know you always do. The mice broods also seemed to favor certain apartment structures while leaving others, you know, nearly empty with no real, seemingly no real reason for doing that. Now, in the wild, there's always going to be mice. You know, mice are social creatures, which is why there may be a good, a decent subject to look at in, in this sort of study, although I think you learn more about mice than people, but I digress. Um, in the wild, you know, a mouse who can't fill his niche in his little, you know, in-group, he would be more or less outcast, and he would fuck off. He'd go somewhere else, maybe find a different group to join up with where he's more useful, maybe start one of his own, who knows? But outcast mice would go away. They'd emigrate. But in this case, emigration was impossible. So what started to happen is that these rejected mice would just kind of start pooling in the middle of the enclosure. They just kind of sit there and congregate. And they'd go through these cycles of extreme inactivity. And then all of a sudden, they'd 
you know, take turns attacking each other, but the person who's getting attacked isn't really fighting back. Like a fight club? Kind of, but like a... Just like more like a cycle of abuse. Like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to beat up on this guy for a while and then someone's going to beat up on me and I'm not going to fight back. You know, that guy didn't Sounds fight like back to me and I'm not going to fight back to this guy. Okay. It's, it's weird. Weird. Uh, the rejected females would go to the highest apartments and they would live quietly, not interacting with anybody. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, Successful mice started congregating around certain food hoppers. Uh, like before, it seemed like the mice got acclimatized to eating with one another and gradually became to prefer it. Now, naturally, most mice offspring don't survive. That's just nature, baby. Mm -hmm. But in this environment, well, yeah, in this environment, they did. Most of them did for the first long while. So the few dominant males found themselves constantly fighting off would-be challengers. Eventually, the females had to fight these challengers out of their nest because the males were just exhausted, uh, leading to a breakdown in the ability to care for their young. Essentially, the behavioral sink from the previous experiment starts to seem to be happening again. Um, by day 560, Calhoun said social order had completely collapsed. Calhoun called this phase C, stagnation. The last phase was called death and lasted until the colony died, stupid. This phase was led by a generation of young that had largely been pushed out of their birth nests too early. The females had less children, and when they did, they couldn't raise them beyond weaning. Their male counterparts, on the other hand, did apparently nothing but preen themselves. No fighting, no fucking. They called these guys the beautiful ones. They would just sit and take care of their coats and eat. These were like the Instagram TikTokers of the most utopia. <laughs> sure, yeah. Useless and just all about their image. Mm -hmm. Now Calhoun declared this colony dead at day 1780 when the last male with any inclination towards reproduction died. He uh, released the results of the study in a paper with the subtle name Death Squared, the Explosive Growth and Demise of a Mouse Population. Now, this article was filled with philosophical and biblical language about the fate of man. Um, this kicks off another round of people trying to shoehorn his result onto human populations. Uh, this time, though, instead of looking at, like, the general broad population of a large city, they start looking at environments where people are, like, forced to be with each other. So places like hospitals, uh, places like dorms, sure, some work environments, uh, prisons uh, is a place where they, uh, they look. And, in fact, prisons is the only place which they ever find any... Uh, any evidence of anything you could remotely call a behavioral sink. Right. Um, which I think kind of says a lot about the experiment. Well, yeah, because you're in a there <laughs> you're putting those mice in a very uh unnatural environment that is in a in a large way like like a prison. Like mm -hmm. did they have any stimulus there? Did they have any was like there enough room to move around and explore and, and like I mean, I don't know what mice do for fun, but 
I got to imagine that they like to just kick back and relax every now and then. Yeah. And it didn't seem like there was any chance to do that in this environment. Um, so that's really, you know, the study has lived on in popular culture. Um, uh, People kind of take the results of this thing maybe a little more seriously than they should. What are your thoughts on on it going back? You know, thinking about how we talked about, you know, what, what are your thoughts on this as an experiment? Well, I'd say, I don't know, like he didn't, it's not like in the Stanford prison experiment where there was a lot of external influence and, and interference, but... I feel like, you know, making this utopia, this man-made utopia, is not ever going to come close to what they're going to find in a natural habitat and environment. Right. And a lot of, you know, it was designed to look like a human environment that happened yeah. to cater to mice. Right. Rather than looking at a, looking like an environment that mice yeah. would live in, like a field or I don't know where mice live. Wood piles. Presumably they live in forests. Um, <clears throat> they creep me out for the record. My, uh, <laughs> oh, really? Mice and rats. I hate them. And then Sid is an absolute like Dr. Doolittle. You know, she used to be working as a vet or working at a yeah. vet. And like, we'll literally, if a mouse is on the ground, pick it up and run it over to me. And I'm like, get, please just go away from me with that. Yeah. She threw a chipmunk in my car by accident once. <laughs> and then I it got lost and we eventually got it back out, but I was absolutely mortified. I ran out of it screaming. Through a witch, sorry? She she grabbed a chipmunk and yeah. the cat was tormenting. Yeah. I was like, look at it, it's so cute. Pet it. And I was like, get it away from me. And she was like holding it in my driver's window. And then it <laughs> jumped out into my ah, lap and ah, ran ah, ran ah, through ah, the car. And I screamed. I was like, ah! And I like jumped out of the car and I was like, you have to get it out. You have to get it out. Dude, I'm such oh. a wimp when it comes to mice and rodents. Like, you have no idea. That is amazing. The I'm so glad biggest that baby. we talked about this horrible mice experiment so that I could hear oh, the yeah. story I'd about how you screamed, just screamed like Ned Flanders. Oh, yeah. And like I'm sitting in my basement right now and I'm like, I'm like pulling all my limbs in like, oh, if anything ran over me. That's I'm so grateful that we have cats. Like I've never seen any evidence of mice in my house ever. And it's, an, you know, it's a built in the 40s house. So like, mm -hmm. thank God, because I, I if I had mice down here, I wouldn't be sitting here. I had mice in my first house and uh, I, at first, like I set out traps and. And there was a lot of mice. Like the traps went, traps went weak before the mice were uh, were were gone. Oh my god! I'm glad you told me that now instead of back when I used to visit you at that house. I'd have been horrified. Yeah, yeah I used to keep a little tally on the chalkboard beside the door of how many mice. But like <laughs> after a after a dozen, it wasn't fun anymore, and I stopped keeping traps. So it wasn't fun to begin <clears throat> with, but it wasn't funny. Yeah. Um, I was working for a company and they had rented a shop space, like, you know, like to work on stuff, but it was, um, beside, uh, a dump. It was just yeah. a cheap, cheap workspace, right? To fab stuff up. Yeah. And there was rats 
and I was like horrified because it would run out when you're when you're like welding and grinding and stuff. Like they they did not care, and I was like, okay, yeah. I'm done. Bye. <laughs> um, horrifying. In terms of this experiment, like my my big issues with this are um, like experimental creep in the sense that like. What are you yeah. trying to do? Are you trying to build a, a utopia for mice or are you trying to prove the point that overpopulation in cities is bad? Because like, I don't know what rat or mouse utopia looks like. I have to imagine if you asked particularly like lady rats, it would have somewhere to hide um, yeah. if they didn't want to mate sure. currently. I have to think if you ask the mice, it would have somewhere for the reject mice to go instead of having to just hang around. Yeah. You know, none of this sounds like it's it's utopia for... Right. I mean, those mice, re rejected mice from one colony can be the alpha in another colony. And really, sure, right? You could have taken them out of the experiment. The other thing is, he's always making these experiments and being like, oh, I think there could be, you know... uh, 3,000 mice in this enclosure. I think there could be 5,000 rats in this enclosure and he never gets close. Are we considering that maybe he's not great at guessing how many mice or rats yeah. fit I think in any given... Uh, I, I do find that it's kind of fascinating, though, uh, in that you do see this breakdown. This you know Eventually, the, the population dies right off, which is kind of neat and it's kind of a interesting behavior, especially because... Um, the one thing about this experiment is he did multiples. It wasn't one experiment. There were mm -hmm. multiple experiments all with the same outcome. And that to me yeah. is kind of still fascinating. And what, whatever it tells you, maybe it doesn't tell you about the general population or, or mice or utopias or anything specific. I think it, specific. it tells it's, you something about mice. Uh, yeah, but it just, you know, it, it, you know, under certain circumstances, uh, things can just get like, like we said in the last one, like Lord of the F Lord of the Flies, like things you'll establish an alpha and a, beta, a now, submissive. One of the things that he really ascribed the behavioral sync to was a loss of purpose among the mice. Sure. Um, which I find is interesting because um, a loss of purpose is the reason that we have language. You know, when when people didn't, when everybody didn't have to be running around and chasing food all the time, when we started to grow stuff out of the ground, all of a sudden people had a chance to sit down. They lost their purpose. It didn't drive them crazy. We invented language. Right. We invented art. We invented, discovered math. Um, you know, I I think comparing humans to mice is silly. Sure. When it comes to behavioral structures, yeah, you know, he had this argument that like humans are more complicated, so we're more at risk for this sort of thing, and I think that's wrong. Like we're well more equipped for this sort of thing. Now, it's it is interesting though in that you can look at some of the things going on. Like uh, obviously, I think at any point in history, you can probably say that we are at the peak humanity on Earth which is just natural because we've always just been multiplying and growing and, but allegedly. Yeah. And other than like in like 1918. Yeah. Allegedly we are 
reaching the what they think is going to be the apex of human growth at like nine and a half billion, which we're supposed to hit by 2030, I believe I read. So, and and I, I read this recently. I can't remember who it was. It was some famous uh, scientist like Neil deGrasse or Bill Nye or maybe it was somebody kind of famous was attributed to saying that um, we're starting to see now a reduction. And I've read some articles like in uh, Japan or China, um, they're starting to see a reduction in the amount of births and they're not sure how to support society going forward. I know that um, compared to the boomer generation, there's significantly less people to fill those jobs, to cover those pensions, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we're actually in a bit of a contraction now. And the thing is you can't have, you can't really have this many people, uh, infinite, you can't have infinite, infinite growth in a finite resource setting. The earth has right. finite resources. In a scarcity setting. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. It just seems like you can look at that experiment and people will draw parallels to what is happening in society. Like, you know. Right. Like the, the whole like Neo-Malthusian thing about, you know, well, eventually there's going to be too many people. Well, yeah. Like that. Yes. The, eventually there will be. Sure. You know, it's figuring out where. And so I'm super glad there are people who are thinking about that. Yeah. It's way better that there's people who are thinking about that now than if there was no people who are thinking about that. That's right. That's a good thing. Uh, I just think, yeah. I just think that it's, you know, um, with a lot of these experiments, specifically with like psychology or sociology, uh, people want to, it's almost like uh, anthropomorph, anthropomorph, you know what I mean? Anthrom Anthropomorphization. Thank you. Where you take, you know, you take human traits and attribute them to your dog. Yeah. Right. But you take these, these uh, study findings and you attribute them to humanity and you look at, you go, okay, well, we're having less. Well, and a lot of this is based on what this one guy was looking at the mice and saying, this is what I think is happening. Right. So you My could, interpretation. you could look at it and interpret it as, okay, now humanity, we're having less kids, right? Uh, statistically having less children. Mm -hmm. um, we have an increased amount of people living alone. We have an increase. It seems anyhow, at least in North America here, that we have an increase of almost like, I want to say like tribalism, like people are starting to really like, I'm in this group and I'm in this group and I'm in this other group. And, and if you're in this group, we can't like each other. And, and it's starting to almost like fracture mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And, and it might not be on the whole, like you could say, take America, everybody's an American, but there's Democrats and Republicans and, you know, those two have been fighting quite a bit lately, more than I've ever known in my lifetime. And the camps, especially at the far outliers of those camps, are saying, well, if you're a, if you're a left-wing liberal, then I have nothing for you on this far right-wing conservative. Same with people who are, you know, there's people who are anti-LGBTQ and there's people who are very much fighting for those rights and those two, like the, the, the identity politics, all the stuff, things are, 
things seem to be fracturing more and more and more as you dissolve further and further into different subsects of identity or groups or anything, right? Mm-hmm. Just like to point out that, you know, this fracturing is largely happening one way. Like, you know, the people who are complaining the most about trans people right now are people who had no problem with trans people five or six years ago. That's what I mean, though. Like years ago. Five, six, ten years ago, all this stuff. I don't feel like it was as bad as it is now with things kind of just breaking off into little groups of this and that. And I, I mean, I hear no, it a everything's lot. The, everything is the, the culture war, the never-ending culture war that started. Well, I mean, so I guess it's always been going on. But yeah, I mean, you're right. It's in high gear. It's in high gear, right? It's it's more mm-hmm. it's more acute than it's ever been. And I think that when people look at these studies, they start like even myself, I look at it and I go, Oh yeah, like we now, got a lot like, of you know Okay, I'm just to play devil's advocate here. Um things have always been pretty fractured. Democracy's always been very messy. And you know, your your perception of things in the before times Largely because those wrinkles get ironed out. Sure. You know, there's this there's this thing going on right now on social media where people are looking at this video of a bunch of teenagers in high school from 2002 and people are going, oh, high school was so chill in the day. No, it wasn't. No, man. Those kids just lived through 9-11. Yeah. There was rampant racism. Uh, there was a freaking war going on. Yeah. Um, you know, you, people iron out that stuff in hindsight. You know, we think, oh, the 70s were so easy. You know, no, they weren't. They, they- I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with you here. I'm going to say, and I'm going to stand by this, the 90s were absolutely fantastic. Yeah, the 90s were the pinnacle of human existence, probably. Yeah, <laughs> right? Like, it was just, it was great. But not for, not for everybody. And not, yeah, and that's true. Not for so, everybody, but for in our world, in my worldview, the 90s was the tits. It was the best, the absolute fantastic thing. Oh, you know what I miss about the 90s? And this explains my so, my um, texting behavior is that you could go home at the end of the day and just decide like, I'm not here. Yeah. I'm, I'm not available to anybody anymore. Right. I think that's something that, that, kids these days don't get as much uh yeah if you were bullied that i feel like and you came home it was a whole different world now all that stuff seems to follow you because it's online and it's it's everything so hyper connected now and that might also be the reason why a lot of things seem more fractured is because it's so it's not the 10 p.m news thing it's the you know 24 7 365 twitter wars and the you know yeah it's weird not good, but it has nothing to do with mice. Has nothing to do with so mice. One of, the, one of the big criticisms, just to bring it back to the mice thing about this study, is that this guy went around and he used the study to say, like, you know, overpopulation, that's that's the big issue. <clears throat> and a lot of people criticize him that that really isn't that big of an issue. And uh, you're drawing attention away from the bigger issues, you know, to kind of suit your your little experiment there. I don't know. It's an interesting experiment. It's got a lot of uh, cultural legacy. I just don't think it's really says much about people. I think it says a lot about mice. Yeah. 
Yeah, I have a closing thought on this. Okay, let's hear it. So I don't know. I don't know at the end of the day if the behavior of rats or the behavior of mice can be correlated with the behavior of humans. I, I don't know for sure. At some level, probably, but but at other levels, I, I don't think so. But at the end of the day, I don't know. I don't know if you can build a utopia for mice as people without, you know, being able to get any any input. I don't know if you can build heaven for mice, but I do know you can build hell. Ooh. Mm. I don't even want to ruin it with a Kev's closing fact. <laughs> oh, you're that, was a, that was a great tie-up. <laughs> <clears throat> you know. Uh, very Wrap well everything up in a nice little button. Yeah, that was good. I like that. Well, thank you. Um, so I just wanted to uh, bring up a uh, news article. Uh, Kev's closing fact is also a little bit of just news, maybe. Yeah. But uh, it is a fact that uh, astronomers have detected a repeating radio signal from an exoplanet and the star that it orbits, located 12 light years away from Earth, the signal suggests that the Earth-sized planet may have a magnetic field and perhaps even an atmosphere. So the fact that they have a repeating radio signal makes me kind of excited. Yes. Now, did you read enough of the article to say that the, Listen, they're pretty sure this the repeating radio signal is coming from Max? <laughs> okay. It's coming from an interaction between the, the sun and the, uh, and the planet. I don't want to talk about this. I want <laughs> or there, I want to be- I want to believe, Matt, that there's <laughs> just a tiny little creature just hammering out on an SOS. Now, hey, I will grant you that when I saw the headline, because I did I did see that, my first thought was two thoughts. The first thought I always have, it's not aliens. Because it, it probably that's, is. That's because it because it's going to be right until it's wrong, right? It's not aliens. My second thought is, if it was, this is how it would start, right? Yeah, yeah. But I I still don't think it is. So we could start texting. It would just take twelve years to get a response, which is kind of like, you know, kind of how I roll with texts. Because <laughs> <Yeah, me too. laughs> we're old. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I'm good. Uh, let me just deliver a life hack to you when you, uh, I thought about, and I saw this online, I thought it was genius. Um, you know, when, how you were saying in the, you could just go home and be done. Yeah. Just, yeah. Best way to deal with a fuck, uh, a pop by somebody pops by unexpectedly. Yeah. Answer the door wearing your jacket or holding your keys then you can either say, I'm just about to leave if you don't want to see the person. Or if you do, you can say, oh, perfect. I just got home. How? Like only your jacket? <laughs> <laughs> and good night. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Fact Smacks. We hope you enjoyed our show. If you want to hear more, be sure to check us out on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash facts Or you can check us out on Facebook or on YouTube or on Twitter.com at FactSchmackedPod. We also have a website, factschmacks.xyz, because we know you haven't had enough yet. Sure. <laughs>